self-destruct sequencing. Welcome to our terrible review mini-series, My Mando and Me. My Mando and Me. We're three friends hanging out, talking about whatever seems interesting at the time. And for now, that's The Mandalorian Season 2. If we haven't met before, hi, my name is Robert. Hi, I'm James. I'm Nathan. We're taking a break from our regularly scheduled programming to share our thoughts on each chapter of Season 2 of The Mandalorian on Disney+. Plus. After each chapter airs, you can expect our review to drop the Sunday after. This week, it's Chapter 11. Like when Han spilled Tauntaun guts on Hoth, this place is about to reek of spoilers. Uh, uh, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. From here on out, we're in spoiler territory. Don't say we didn't warn you. Chapter 11, The Heiress. Directed by Bryce Dallas Howard. Written by John Favreau. A Mandalorian braves high seas and meets unexpected allies. We'll walk through the chapter chronologically, covering what happens along the way, and share any thoughts or notes we have as we progress. This chapter starts off with some much-needed napping. We open on the battered Razor Crest finally arriving at the estuary moon of Trask, with our passengers resting from the terrifying events of Chapter 10. Thank God, no more spiders. Uh, I think it's also nice that they get a little bit of a break to take a nap after all that action last week. I was going to say, I don't see, I don't think I'd be able to sleep knowing that there's just one door between you and the hard vacuum of space, though. So I don't know how easily they were able to rest, but if they were, kudos to them, because I wouldn't, I would be a coward. In space, no one can hear you sleep. <laughs> but yeah, it is, it is interesting that, like, I wonder if we're going to continue this season, like, it's so far, two for two, the, the, the chapter picks up immediately where the previous one left off. I don't know, just more of that serialized storytelling. And I love it. The landing array on the Razor Crest is malfunctioning. So landing is going to be a little dicey. Uh, with the help of the Frog Lady, Mando makes a risky splash landing, narrowly missing the landing pad at the last moment for a quick dip in the water while a Mon Calamarian dock worker looks on in disappointment. It's a splash! <laughs> Yeah, they uh, that that rough uh, atmosphere reentry landing. It, it really reminded me of the same thing that Anakin and Obi Wan had to deal with at the beginning of Revenge of the Sith, only with seemingly less more property damage on Mandalorian's part. <laughs> I, I seem to recall it's been a while since I've seen, you know, that part of the movie. But there were a lot of towers and things being knocked down. I hope they were evacuated first. For sure. Um, I do love the look on the, uh, the Mon Calamari's face where he's just kind of like watching. He's just like, these people. Uh, <laughs> so uh, after being fished out of the water, our three arrivals look for Frog Lady's husband. Uh, and I like this part because they show the like an AT, AT legs with a crane body on top lifting the Razor Crest out of the water. Uh, thank God that the water was not very deep um because well, that I mean, would have been kind a of hard to tell how deep it is like it looks like they're going off of an ATAT design but we don't see the bottom of the legs so maybe it's just sure. extra long legs and it is neat that they use the same kind of sound effects from the movies of the AT's legs yeah um so that's just it really neat some of that those details there uh once they find 
the frog lady's husband, Mando wastes no time asking him for the location of the Mandalorians and the frog man. Yes, I'm not kidding. Frog man points him in the direction of a nearby inn and a mysterious hooded figure watches from the distance. Now, I saw Frogman, and I don't know what I was expecting. Like, I was still, for some reason, surprised that this is the direction they went with naming this character, but it, it makes sense. But I was just like, yeah, duh, Frogman. <laughs> I get it. Uh, I also like that we get a little bit of a happy reunion, and the Mando's kind of watching on. It's, again, speaking to, like, his his past of like losing his family and being able to see that he was able to contribute to being able to reunite a family together. I thought was a nice little touching moment uh, at the yeah, end. And as, as far as, as far as the planet of, or moon of Trask in general, it, it's really nice seeing all these different, like the Mon Calamari and Quarren, the squid phases, unless that's derogatory. <laughs> seeing a bunch of them on this ocean world because like the 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 effects and the costume the, the creature effects all just really continue to impress in this series yeah they're very very good uh at the end the mando slips some flan to the waiter in exchange for information on the location of more mandalorians while the child fights with his meal uh, and i thought this was a funny scene first of all I would like to open up the floor to debate on whether or not this is actually a cantina well, at least as of right now for this scene, <clears throat> uh, they referred to it as the inn. Mm -hmm. And I don't really so see anybody like drinking. You could maybe make the argument later in the episode. Mm, we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. Uh, and I do love that uh, for the first part, because it does happen again later on in this episode a few times. Um, the child is kind of getting a little bit of payback for his behavior in the previous episode where he was eating everything before now things are trying to eat him <laughs> and so i thought that was funny that this little squid thing that's in the soup that he's trying to eat just latches onto his face and he's struggling with it and then we get a funny little line from mando where he's like stop playing with your food yep <laughs> to, to, to be fair the child really deserved that comeuppance after eating the frog lady's eggs Yep. Yeah, like, like seriously, that that's still that still was a big no no from last week. Hey, man, the Internet is a flame with all kinds of uh, controversies surrounding that. But we'll move on. Uh, the waiter approaches some quarrens in the corner of the inn for now uh, and informs them of the Mando's request. And they offer to ferry him across the river to a location that the Mandalorians are at in exchange for a fee. Um, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and say it is a trap. It's a trap. It, it's it's definitely a trap. But anyway, yeah, I I understand Mandalorian is desperate for any kind of leads on his people, but like I would have I would have hoped that he would have realized that the Corian Sea Captain was acting extra shifty, and it would have just made him be like, maybe I'll find another lead somewhere else. <laughs> like he goes on this ship and with him, fine, but like. He should have just been like, um, no, you may not interact with the child. No, thanks. Yeah. I figured that um, that the Mandalorian was like, eh, I have a jetpack. If I need to make a quick escape, I can. So he wasn't too worried about it. Like he even tells the child, like that's close enough when it comes to the whole feeding the creature thing that's about to happen. Yeah. So I think he thought he was prepared for anything, but then he wasn't. So the Mando and the child are taken by ferry to their destination and the Quarrens turn on them. No surprise there. And try to feed them to a Kraken-like creature called the Mama Core, 
in an attempt to steal the Mandalorian's Beskar armor. Uh, and again, like we said, Mando is far too trusting. But like, again, do these people not learn? When you mess with the child, you're gonna get wrecked. But again, again, uh, the the imagery here is great because they knock the child with his pod into the water and the mama core comes up to swallow him and the child closes the pod. The pod is egg shaped. So the mama core ate an egg, not all that different from the child eating the frog lady's eggs. So I just, I love that they're not just like having the child kind of get payback for his behavior, but that the imagery is there too, um, you know, with the whole eating of eggs. I thought that was a pretty interesting connection there. Yeah, real, real, real quick. Gotta, gotta give a shout out to the the uh, awesome musical theme that they have for the choir and their sea crew. Like it, it's in this scene, and it comes back in a scene in another couple minutes. Like to me, it kind of sounds like it has a little bit of like an accordion feel to it, and it just to me it really invoked that kind of like high seas piratey type feel to it, and it, it was just really awesome. Yeah, Ludwig Gronson continues to kill it with the music in this series. Uh, so just when it seems that the Mando is in over his head and drowning in hopelessness, three Mandalorians swoop in and make quick work of the Corrin thieves. And while this is happening, I'm thinking, I'm trying to pay close attention to what's happening. And I'm, you know, we're all expecting certain characters to show up. And I'm like, is that Bo-Katan? Like, that looks like her armor. I think I see an owl depiction on her helmet. It's got to be her. It's got to be her. It's got to be her. Uh, and so... Uh, they make quick work of the thieves, like we said, and one of them dives in the water and rescues the child from the clutches of the Mama Corps. Thank the Force, he's okay. Um, and while thanking them for saving their lives, the three Mandalorians remove their helmets. And this is a really, really neat scene because it, it's, again, just like it was in Chapter 9 with Cobb Vanth, where he's like, oh, here's another Mandalorian. Let's sit and talk and, you know, catch up and talk about our culture, whatever. Let's hang out. We're all Mandos, right? And then the helmet comes off and the attitude completely changes. Uh, and so Mando is unsettled, just like with Cobb Banth, and demands them to explain how they obtained their armor and their leader. The, 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 shift, the shift in the body language for, for the Mandalorian there is you can practically see him just kind of sh like do, do that kind of shrug of like, come on, really? Another one? So their leader, revealed to be none other than Bo-Katan of Clan Krees, explains that the armor has been in her family for generations. Hell yeah, it's Bo-Katan. Uh, this character, we'll go into not, a little not bit only, more well, here in a minute. Not only, not only is it Bo-Katan, who you know, we've seen in Clone Wars and Rebels, she's also played by Katie Sackhoff who provided her voice in the animated series as well. Yes. And so this was going to be her first live action appearance, which is really neat. Like it was sort of, I, I think Nathan noticed this too. It was like sort of spoiled by the subtitles. If you had them on before the helmet came off, but you could, if you'd watched the previous, you know, animated stuff, you could tell by the armor and the voice, but as far as I could tell, her, her two companions, uh, Koska Reeves and Axe Wolves, at least from what I could tell in the credits, this is their first appearance. So honestly, they're just two random Mandalorians. Mm -hmm. Two brand new characters. Uh, so quick background for those of you that uh, have not watched the Clone Wars or Rebels animated series, and you should, definitely should, for some way more context to this series. Uh, 
Bo-Katan first appears in the Clone Wars animated series. She's the sister of the late Duchess Satine, who at that time was the pacifist leader of Mandalore. Again, so much to get into. Go watch the Clone Wars and Rebels. Uh, she is a former member of Death Watch. We'll get into more on that later. And the last time we saw her, she was in possession of the Darksaber, now in possession of Moff Gideon, thanks to the fin finale in season one. Uh, and she was leading Mandalore against the Empire. Uh, I am super, super excited to see this character in this show. Um, of all of the characters to bring in, this one makes the absolute most sense because we're learning about the Mandalorian culture. We're trying to figure out what Mandos are all about. And here we have the leader of Mandalore, right? The person who sits on the throne of Mandalore, or at least previously sat on the throne of Mandalore. That's up for debate at the moment. Uh, and this is just absolutely incredible. Like, I love that this character is here for us. Uh, so Mando points out that they do not keep on their helmets. Uh, and one of the three, Axe Wolves, as Jane mentioned, laments that he is one of them. Um, and so Bo explains that the Mando is a child of the Watch, a cult of religious zealots seeking to reestablish the ancient way. And right away, we get the answer we have, oh, at least most of us fans have been asking for since season one, when he talked about never removing his helmet, is why? Because until now, Mandos remove their helmets all the time. And up until the last time we see Mandalorians and Rebels, they are pretty much walking around without helmets unless they're in combat. So what's going on here? Uh, and so we finally get an answer that it looks like this creed of never removing their helmet belongs to the watch, most likely referring to Death Watch. And there's way too much to get into there. I cannot say this enough, and we'll say it again before this episode is over. Go watch The Clone Wars and Rebels, please. You will appreciate it so much more. And uh, this is, but but uh, speaking to what we mentioned last week is, you know, the show does an amazing job of bringing in all of this lore and stuff that if you watched all of these things and you were paying attention, it's rewarding you, but not leaving those of you that didn't watch behind. So if you didn't see the Clone Wars, you didn't see Rebels, it is not necessary to understand what's going on. I have complete faith in Jon Favreau and Dave Filoni that they will make sure that those that were not watching those shows uh, can still keep up because otherwise the show would not be successful. Star Wars is for everyone. Uh, and, but if you watch those two shows, believe me, you will appreciate it so much more. There is so much reach, rich history there that you're missing out on. So if you can find the time to binge it, binge it now, binge it fast. To be fair, given, given the runtime of this episode, I don't think a lot of people would have complained if we had an extra five to 10 minute info dump info dump from Bo-Katan mm -hmm. like the episode after you take out credits and everything probably only ran about 30 minutes yeah but speaking to what Robert was saying I'm actually in the process of watching the Clone Wars cartoon for the first time ever I just never really took the time to get into it and so it's kind of interesting seeing some of these things like with Satine being a pacifist leader of Mandalore it, it's really nice getting this history as I'm watching the Mandalorian right now as well so Robert's right if you haven't seen it it's not that you're missing out but you, like he said, you will appreciate so much more. So I haven't seen all the Clone Wars yet. I've seen the Rebels uh, show. 
And so just, if you're in, if you haven't started, go ahead and start here. It, it all flows together. It's all one story. So it's been yeah. fantastic. Uh, another great thing about this scene is we're seeing the Mandalorian kind of have a bit of an identity crisis. You hear his voice kind of get a little shaky because his creed, his belief system is being challenged by someone who claims to be the leader of Mandalore. Like he can't just outright dismiss her as, oh, you're just some fake Mandalorian. You're not a real Mandalorian. Like, no, this lady is claiming to be Mandalore, basically. The leader of Mandalore is called Mandalore, basically, themselves. So he's trying to tell the person who represents all of Mandalorian culture that they're wrong. And so you could see him kind of struggling with that. Um, he's also kind of, you know, three Mandalorians against one. I don't think he likes those odds. Um, so, but I just, I love this in this small little nugget of you're a child of the watch for those of us that have been keeping and keeping up with the rest of the shows. It's, it's mind blowing. Like just, amazing the possibilities that we have here yeah as, as far as being a child of the watch i i think the real lesson here is never let your child join an extremist cult no matter how well meaning they may seem so in quiet protest mando takes uh off of and returns to port while the other three stay behind to destroy the ferry uh, wandering around that port that same evening mando is confronted by the brother of the quarren that attempted to kill him uh, and the child back on the ferry. And with his gang in tow, they're seeking revenge for the death of his brother. Um, now- You killed again, my brother. Which brother? All my brothers. And so uh, if you, again, if you watch the Clone Wars, you would know that Quarrens are often painted as aggressive species on the wrong side of the Star Wars. Uh, they joined the Separatists in a civil war against the Mon Calamari. They both basically are the species that share or co-inhabit that planet. And they start a civil war after the king of Mon Calamari is assassinated and his son, a Mon Calamari, uh, goes to take his place and starts a whole civil war there. So Quarren's not nice guys. Um, so, you know, we, we they definitely communicate that to you throughout this episode, or at least in the first half, that Quarren's not nice people. Uh, Bo, Casca, and Axe arrive to save the day uh, and help Mando. Uh, Bo claims the kill and says, you know, I killed him. Uh, and then the four of them quickly dispatch the gang. And Bo offers Mando a drink to explain why they're on on Trask in the first place and how they can help each other. Now, let's go back to our cantina debate. <laughs> because now that she has offered them a drink and they are drinking, I think this makes this a cantina. IG. Please increment the new official My Mando and Me Cantina Counting Contraption. We are now at three cantinas. I will initiate. Honestly, doesn't really matter though. Look, man, we've been over this. More cantina. Ultimately, it, it doesn't really matter. So Bo explains that Trask is a black market port that the Empire is using to stage weapons that were bought and sold with the plunders of Mandalore. They're seizing those weapons in a series of heists to prepare to retake Mandalore. Uh, Mando shares that uh, the planet is lost and uninhabitable thanks to the efforts of the Empire, but Bo tells him not to believe everything he hears. And this brings me back to the whole thing with the watch. Um, you know, I feel like the show is kind of alluding to that there's going to be a clash between Bo Katan's group and the watch. And there's a lot of interesting things going on there because. Bo is a former member of the Watch. And so 
I'm sure that may come to bite her in the end. You know, like if Mando is kind of standing in the middle trying to choose sides and they reveal that Bo used to be a member of the watch, Mando will be like, well, how can I trust you if you can't even seem to like stick to your ideals, things like that. Um, very, very interesting. And, and then also what is the watch trying to hide by communicating to its followers to stay away from Mandalore? Um, again, in Clone Wars, the whole idea of Death Watch is to take control and rule Mandalore. You would think they would want to basically get back to the planet and take it over as quickly as possible. Um, and again, we get Bo challenging the Mando's beliefs here, which I, which I love. So the Mando reminds them that he's on a mission to return the child to the Jedi, and Bo reveals that she can lead the Mando to one of their kind, but first he must help them on a mission. And so we get a surprise here. She knows the location of a Jedi. Now, we're not going to mention it right this moment, but most of the Star Wars fans in the room kind of know who she might be talking about, but I like that they leave it ambiguous at this point. Like, don't tell us who it is yet. Leave us surprised. Honestly, I would have preferred if they would have left it ambiguous the entire episode. Like at the end, don't even bother to mention the name of the Jedi. Like yeah. We get that reveal, but we don't really need it. We all mm -hmm. know who it's more than likely going to be, but like, Leave it in suspense for all the people who maybe aren't up on every bit of the canon. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, we get again the Mando needing another piece of information to continue on his journey, on his quest, and he needs to complete another mission to be able to obtain that information. It seems it's not it's not a complaint for me per se, but it's just this kind of recurring theme that every time he comes up with another piece of information or another step in his journey, there is a mission or something he needs to complete for someone else before he can get that. I mean, you got to do all the side missions if you want to get to max level. Yep. Mm -hmm. So uh, the mission is to help them steal back weapons that are being taken off world on an Imperial Gazanti freighter. Uh, and I love this. Uh, Gazanti freighters made their first appearance very briefly all the way back in the Phantom Menace after Anakin wins the boon to Eve, you can see it taking off in the background. Now, at that point, it's not an Imperial Gozanti freighter, but it is a Gozanti-class freighter taking off in the background. Uh, and then it is featured prominently, you're going to get tired of me saying it, in the Clone Wars and the Rebels animated series. So it is cool to see more of those connections here. Yeah, it gets it goes to show that those those ships have been in service for a long time. And it makes me wonder whether this is like, the Imperial Remnant just kind of like dealing with all the the few remaining scraps of ships that they have left. Cause like, I would have thought they would have maybe moved on from that by this point, but mm -hmm. eh, whatever. And maybe it's reliable. They're, they're, they're probably in very dire straits, understandably. Mm -hmm. uh, so the plan is to board the freighter mid flight before it can begin ascent. There's a restriction where it can't start ascending until it's uh, out of the port's airspace. No wakes on man. And we get uh, we get some mention of the tr you know what kind of opposition they're going to face, and that there's probably a squad of troopers on board. And we get a very funny uh, line from Axe that they couldn't hit the side of a bantha. Uh, apparently, according to Obi Wan, they can hit the side of a sand crawler very accurately. And these blast points too accurate for sand people. Only Imperial stormtroopers are so precise but they can't hit a Bantha, which is much, much smaller. But I do like this joke 
again about stormtroopers not being able to aim at things. So before barking on their mission, the Mando goes and drops off the child at the Frog family's home for safekeeping. Uh, daycare for one, please. <laughs> uh, I, as soon as he walks in and he's like, you know, I have something came up. Can you watch him for me? I'm like, no, did you not learn from last, last chapter? Do not leave him there. Uh, but we do find out that at least one of the eggs has hatched and uh, the child has a more innocent look at this one, but I'm still thinking, does he think it's cute or does he think it looks tasty? <laughs> Snack time. <laughs> Our team boards the freighter and makes quick work of the troopers as they move towards and reach the cargo area. Uh, this is real neat, and we get a real funny moment here where Koska wraps her arms around a trooper and just takes off into the air. And I started thinking about, oh, are they just going to drop him in the water? Uh, and he's just going to like plop, like maybe belly flop on the water, kind of like how that other creature kind of belly flopped on the ground when the Mando dropped him in the in uh, chapter nine. And uh, no, we get one even better. He splatters on the windshield. Uh, no amount of Rain-X is going to take care of that. Uh, and you can't help but feel bad for the poor stormtroopers, man. They're just getting decimated left and right. You know they're all going to die. Uh, and we even get a moment where like, the security officers in the cockpit are like, you know, like, what's going on or whatever? How many are there? And the stormtroopers are like, there must be 10 of them, maybe more. And then you hear, and then late, and then a moment later you hear, there's only four. Um, <laughs> they're just, they're getting- but they're Mandalorians. They're, they're getting swamped here, man. Yeah, so so they, they go through a series of rooms and I'll admit that I am no military strategist, but who, who decided the best tactic for stormtroopers? So the first room- they're perfectly fine. They're using some cover and stuff. But in their second room, they go through this like narrow hallway and they're just lined up side by side, filing through. And I'm trying to think like, I know they're maybe trying to overwhelm them with numbers and everything, but given how the rest of their people have gone, like what kind of tactic is this? Like <laughs> you have some cover options, use it. It's probably not going to matter, but make the attempt guys. Yeah. Brilliant tacticians, the Imperials are not. Um, since Thrawn is stuck out in space somewhere with Ezra, again, watch Rebels. Uh, they don't really have anybody smart enough to lead them in that sense. Uh, so the officer securing the cargo hold believes they had them caught when he orders the troopers to lock all doors, trapping them inside the cargo hold control area. And it's a really funny moment because he's like, close the doors. And he's like, which door? All the doors. All of them. All the doors. All of them. <laughs> all of them. Close all the doors. Um, they learn quickly, though, that that was not such a good idea. And the Mandalorian team uses the controls in the cargo control area to jettison the imps out the back of the cargo bay door. And I got to admit. The, the, the timing on that whole where are they trapped by the captain was great. It's like, as soon as they're like, oh yeah, they're in the cargo control area. And you just see a, a, a large visible gulp from that unnamed captain. It's like, oh, I know what's happening. That's not great. Yeah, that must've sucked, but I'm Ching. No, yeah, we did. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, and you gotta love but when we, Imps have- we also, we also get this captain uh, having a hollow conversation with Moff Gideon. And I really liked, we got a confirmation that Gideon has access to a whole fleet. 
we don't know how big of a fleet, but he mentions, you know, Hey, we, you know, rendezvous with the fleet. We need some reinforcements, but I, it is just interesting to see how large of a role Gideon actually might have in the Imperial remnant, or if he actually is just, you know, his own little offshoot, just gathering whatever resources he can and is a, a warlord. Mm -hmm. So the security officers in the cockpit radio in to check on their crewmates that have been sucked out. And uh, Bo taunts them over the comms. The captain warns them that uh, their team will be hunted down and killed if they take the cargo. And uh, But Bo makes sure the captain knows that her intentions are to actually take the entire ship. And this prompts a little bit of a protest from the Mandalorian. Uh, she's altering the deal. The deal was to help her secure weapons, not the ship, um, which is a much more daunting task. The Mandalorian reminds her that she has other things to do um, and that that was not the terms of their deal. Uh, but Bo explains to the Mando that the Empire is possess in possession of something that she needs so that she can rule Mandalore and the Mando still needs her in order to find the Jedi. At this moment I love because she takes the this is the way and kind of twists it against him in a way like, you know, again she's the supposed leader of Mandalore and she's like if you're going to stick to this Creed thing, this is the way. And you can, and again... She, she almost used it as kind of like a curse against him. Like, mm -hmm. it made me feel like it gave a hint of, like, uh, her original appearances on the Clone Wars when she was a villain with Death Watch kind of fighting against her sister for control of Mandalore. Mm -hmm. It's just, it, it, for a moment, it made it seem like, oh, she is not a nice person and maybe I shouldn't trust her. Even if by the end, they just kind of, like, take it back yeah um so mando's hand is forced and they make for the cockpit and we get another fight uh going on but while the fight is happening like james mentioned the captain radios none other than moff gideon for help uh and believing the effort to be lost moff gideon refuses to send aid and tells the captain you know what to do uh prompting the captain to shoot the two security officers with him in the back and begin to fly the freighter kamikaze style onto it on a collision course with the surface of the planet or the moon in this case. Um, I just got this like funny, like just thought like, this is like the typical thing like with why it's hard to imagine being a bad guy. Like, you know, here I am devoting my life to the empire and then it's just like, yeah, you're lost. Go ahead and kill yourself. And it's like, what? I, I don't know if I could dedicate myself to a cause like that so so easily, right? Um, so there's got to be something, some deeper meaning there for just how loyal these um, Imperials can be to the Empire, even though it's falling apart. Yeah, and when you combine that with the, the Mandalorians, you know, make their way into the cockpit, and they take this guy captured and like all of a sudden he's pulled out like ha ha electro suicide tooth it just shows you like he's he does not want to be captured because he he knows how ruthless moff gideon must be you know like he does not want to suffer his wrath more than he is just like oh well i'm gonna die anyway see you and i think that's where the loyalty comes from is from fear more so than actual loyalty that, you know, if I don't do my job, that I'm going to be tortured and maybe not even put to death, but just tortured for the rest of my life. So if I don't do what I'm told, then I'm going to have a fate worse than death. Yeah. 
It's a good observation. Uh, so the team desperately fights to get through the final Stormtrooper holdout, and it doesn't look like they're going to make it in time, and they contemplate abandoning ship. Uh, Mando sees an opportunity to make a run through the corridor uh, and starts taking direct hits as he's holding a few explosives under his arms and manages to toss them under the troopers and take them out. Uh, the Mando really needs that information so much so that he's willing to put his life at risk, and I think that's also showing like his trust in the armor to protect him because he takes quite a licking from those blaster bolts. Uh, his desperate efforts, though, are not in vain. They reach the cockpit, pull the captain from the controls, and they manage to stop the ship from crashing into the watery surface. Um, Bo holds the captain at knife point, and like James pointed out, um, as she's trying to get information from him on the location of the Darksaber, uh, the captain bites down on Star Wars version of cyanide pill, and he gets electrocuted and dies. Uh, so this opens up the question of, you know, we know Moff Gideon has the Darksaber, but Bo somehow lost it. She knows that Moff Gideon is the one that has it. So I'm very, very intrigued to learn how it is that she lost it to, to Moff in the first place. Um, you know, I know that they talk about the purge and there's still some, some, a bunch of stuff to learn there. Uh, but I just, I can't wait to hear that story about how it is that she came to lose the Darksaber to the Moff. Yeah, no, I'm sure we will get that story eventually. Having secured the ship, Bo makes one last effort to convince the Mando to help them in their cause, but he must continue on his quest to return the child to the Jedi. Bo tells Mando to take the foundling to a city of Caladan on the forest planet of Corvus, where he can find the one and only Ahsoka Tano. Uh, and I've got, I've got mixed feelings about this reveal. Um, and I was going to kind of save this for like the wrap up, but I mean, we can talk about it now since we're at this moment in the episode. Uh, I agree with James. I would have preferred that they not name drop it at all and kept it ambiguous the entire time. Um, you know, the fact that they drop her, they drop her name was just kind of, con the episode's already short, but it was just kind of confirmation like, well, we're definitely not going to see her now, uh, at least not yet anyway. And uh, probably not in the next episode either. I feel like this is something to hold out on. Uh, Dave Filoni is directing uh, episode five, which would be chapter 13. Um, and since- Yeah, yeah, I, I definitely, I don't see us getting immediately to Ahsoka in the next chapter. 12 is going to be directed by Carl Weathers, who plays Grief Karga. So the, the remaining scenes from the trailer that we haven't had yet in the series will probably be a whole like- uh, Mando going back to to Karga and Cara Dune and them doing I don't know the jailbreak to get that Horatio Sands alien whatever that's probably what we're gonna get next episode yeah maybe Mando feels like oh no my ship can't make it to this other planet I need to stop off at a place where I feel I'm going to be safe let's go to Navarro and do another side job to get my mm. ship fixed up better but yeah. yeah like you said chapter 13 is both written and directed by Dave Filoni given that Ahsoka is Filoni's favorite child. I, I can't see him passing off the directing duties of her first live action appearance to anyone but himself. The best we could hope for with the next episode is maybe she'll be a cliffhanger at the end of it before chapter 13, but I, I wouldn't even count on that. Yeah. So um, before he leaves, uh, Mando does show Bo some respect uh, by repeating this is the way to her, now more sincere than it was a curse before. Uh, 
Um, and this kind of like speaks to what the show I feel is doing with Mando this season, where they are trying to teach Mando and, and then therefore us that there's more to being a Mandalorian than just the creed. Um, you know, don't judge a book by its cover. People can change things of that nature and just challenging the, the Mando's belief system because first with Cobb in chapter nine, um, he wants the armor back because he's not a Mandalorian, but then Cobb's efforts to save the town and then honoring his end of the deal, you kind of get this moment where like, if it wasn't because of the creed, Mando would probably leave the armor for Cobb to keep because he's earned it. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, then with the New Republic pilots in chapter 10, we first see that they're kind of like enemies, right? He's running away from them because he's afraid they're going to kill him for his participation in the heist in season one. But then later on, we learn that his efforts to protect uh, Matt Lanter's character and capture the other three criminals um, has them spare his life and commute his punishment in a sense uh, for indirectly assisting them in chapter six. And then here with Bo, you know, she utters the, this is the way and the Mando reciprocates. And then up until this point, it was either used to reinforce his rigid beliefs or as a way to force his hand. And so here we get this change where now it's used with sincerity and respect. Um, you know, but also, I think this is also very telling for Bo because she has reasons to despise Death Watch. Again, watch the Clone Wars and Rebels. Um And one could argue that they were instrumental in the fall of Mandalore. They sided with Maul during the Clone Wars. They created this divide amongst the Mandalorian people. Uh, So for her to recite, this is the way to Mando, knowing that he sees it from the side of the creed of the watch, um, I think also speaks to her coming to respect him, even though he's a child of the watch. Um, And so that's a, a neat thing that I think the show is trying to teach us about, you know, being able to live with each other's differences and learning to respect each other for who we are and not what we believe, um, I think is a a nice touch. At least that's what I see. Mando jets back to the port to relieve the child, uh, retrieve the child uh, who is playing with the Frog family's recently born child. Uh, Mando thanks the Frog family and congratulates them on their new addition. Uh, I can't tell here whether or not the child wants to continue to play with the baby or eat it. you know, but whatever. And uh, Mando and the child return to a barely repaired Razor Crest. Uh, we didn't talk about it earlier, but he does pay that Mon Calamari dock worker to fix the ship. And he doesn't make any promises and obviously didn't keep any. Uh, but, uh, well, you know. Because the Mandalorian says, do what you can. And then as he walks away, the, the dock worker says, oh, I'll fill it up. So like me as an audience member, I was thinking, okay, he won't be able to do much because either it's beyond his abilities, he doesn't have the supplies to do it, or the Razor Crest is just no longer a viable ship to go on to. So it's it, it definitely taken a beating thus far this season. Yeah. So they embark on their journey in search of the famed Jedi. Poor Razor Crest fan. It's been through a lot. And what's up with all the nets? Like, I get that the Mount Calamari are fish like creatures, but don't fish not like nets. So, like, why are there nets all over the Razor Crest now? Uh, but whatever. You know, we do get yet another creature that I want to think is probably like a baby mama core um, because the way its mouth opens. But anyway, it basically tries to eat the child. We get another creature trying to eat the child again. Uh, You know, karma, 
is a bantha. Bantha. <laughs> Karma's a bantha. And so, you know, it tries to eat the the child, but we get Mando kind of catching it and kind of crushing it at the last moment. And then the baby slurping it up um, there just before we leave. And I do love that, you know, the Razor Crest takes off into hyperspace and just one little chunk of the Razor Crest just stays behind floating in space. I thought that was funny. Final thoughts. So what are you guys' overall thoughts in this episode? This was a great follow-up from last episode because last episode seemed very annoying to me, but this one was, it was like an action adventure about almost the entire thing, which is little quips here and there with a comedy and the just touching moments. Um, and so while my theory was kind of true and that it did set up with the, 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 the frogman and everything, it wasn't as um, essential, I guess, as I thought it would be. Cause I thought the whole him having to repair the ship and argue with the frog lady about getting out of there sooner rather than later and whatever, that didn't really come to fruition, but it, it almost kind of did because, you know, he, he felt like he could trust these people to leave the child with while he went off to do the mission he needed to do mm-hmm. instead of the dock worker who was kind of worthless. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I just think uh, the show obviously continues to impress with the flow of its action scenes. Like, even if we just take the last major set piece of the, the battle on the Gazanti freighter, you know, going from corridor to corridor, taking out the stormtroopers, going to the cargo thing, to the bridge, it just has a, a nice flow to it, to where you can, it's not like so busy that you can't understand what's going on. It, it's very easy to see. But um, I just got to point out, so while the amount of nods to the other Star Wars properties so far this season has been great for me, I imagine great for you all as well. Uh, you know, we're people who are up more or less on the Star Wars lore. I can easily see it being a turnoff for anyone who maybe came with only a kind of a passing casual interest in Star Wars and was drawn into that first season thinking like it was, you know, relatively self-contained. It does seem like, especially with Filoni being one of the people behind the scenes, it follows sort of like what happened with Rebels where uh, the first season of Rebels, you, you had it mostly contained on Lothal, dealing with stuff there. And by the end of the season, you got a tease of like dealing with the the larger rebellion as it was growing. And then you had that continue on for the rest of the series. So I guess that's sort of what's happening here. But I, I can definitely see it being a turnoff to people who are like, okay, I don't know who Bo-Katan is. And should I care? Why do I care? I have to watch a, a, a seven uh, a seven season long Clone Wars thing, what? And four seasons of a Rebels? Who ha- who has time for that? No. Again, just for the casual people. And and right now, as far as like for the future of the show, like just for this season alone, we have so many different balls in the air right now. We've got you know a tease of Boba Fett. We've got Bo Katan possibly trying to retake Mandalore. You know, we're searching for Ahsoka Tano. Moff Gideon still pursuing the child, etc. So on. And with so few episodes in each season, it, it looks like Disney and Lucasfilm are probably planning for the long haul with this with this show, maybe even potentially eyeing any spinoff series. You know, uh, according to rumors, we might be getting Rosario Dawson playing live action Ahsoka for getting such a big name. Maybe they're going to work on a live action Ahsoka series. Who knows? But overall, this episode, I enjoyed it. 
Overall, I loved this episode. The Mandalorian world is expanding and being fleshed out, and I love that. Give me more of that, please. And the show, uh, not to not to disagree with James in a sense, I do agree that there are some issues with um, touching all of these other outside properties. Um, I still love that they're doing a very good job of rewarding fans that have been paying attention to these things while not totally leaving the casual fan behind. Um, hopefully for you casual fans, it is enticing you to watch those things because there's a lot of great Star Wars in those series. Uh, but I, I promise you it's not necessary. I believe Favreau is going to do a good job of keeping you up to pace where you don't have to watch it if you don't want to or just simply don't have the time. If I had one gripe about this episode, it's that it's just short. It's it's feels pretty short, and I just would have loved a little bit more. Like Nathan, like uh, James had pointed out earlier, maybe just a couple extra minutes to share, maybe a few more stories to give those casual fans a background of how uh, Bo came to be in possession of the dark saber in the first place and ruling uh, Mandalore. But I get that maybe they're saving that for later. They so, they could have even had it like in uh, uh, the chapter with Cobb Vanth he got an actual like flashback thing. We should have had that for Bo-Katan. Maybe not, maybe not, you know, you know, throwing all their, their eggs at once, but like, maybe we don't need to see, oh, how, here's how she lost the Darksaber already. Save that if they want, but like just some sort of flashback for her. Yeah. And some last minute notes for things that I missed that didn't really fit in particular parts of the episode. Uh, Dank Farrick, uh, what does it mean? We're getting a lot more people saying it now. Dink Farrick. Dink Farrick. Uh, and saying it more often. So I am interested in knowing what the origin of that phrase is or what our English equivalent or, or Earth world equivalent of Dank Farrick would be. Um, Bo, when she takes off her helmet, the sound effect that it makes is the same sound effect of when Vader's helmet is first put on in Revenge of the Sith. And then uh, other, speaking of other sound effects, uh, sound effect callbacks, when the captain orders the security officers to seal the hatch, the sound that it makes is the sound of a pod racer boosting. Seal the hatch, sir. But let us know what you thought of chapter 11 in the comments. Speaking of comments, we'd like to give a shout out to Daryl for sharing his thoughts and providing some feedback on our review of chapter 10 last week. Well, that wraps up this episode of My Man Doing Me. Join us next week for Chapter 12. If you enjoyed our show, be sure to like and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes of My Man Doing Me. Thanks again for joining us. See you on the next one. Bye-bye. Be good to each other out there. You've been listening to My Man Doing Me, presented by the This Is Going To Be Terrible podcast, hosted by Robert Green, James Altman, and Nathan Thieneman. For more information about our podcast, visit our website, thisisgoingtobeterrible.show, or find us on Facebook by searching for This Is Going To Be Terrible, a podcast. Thanks for listening.